Let me give you an age-old hypothetical question. If you could choose between one of these, what would you pick? The power to fly or the power to be invisible? <laughs> Gut reaction, what is it? Now keep in mind, you would be the only person in the world with this power and you can't have both. So, flight or invisibility? Hmm. Maybe your gut reaction says that you've thought about this before. Well, after you've chosen flight or invisibility, I bet I can think I know what you're doing. You are probably thinking the first things you would do with flight or invisibility. Are your plans flashy or heroic? Maybe if you had the power to fly, you'd say, oh, I don't have to drive anymore. No more traffic. No more bus. That'd be great. Maybe invisibility. Now you can leave the room, then come back into the room you were just in and see what people think about you. <laughs> As you're formulating plans um, and thinking about your, what you would do with your power, maybe next you're coming into loopholes and ask, asking questions. If you chose the power to fly, and then you may ask, well, how fast can I fly? How high can I fly? And if I can fly really high and really fast, does, is that comfortable? Does that affect my body? Is my body able to handle that? Well, if you chose invisibility, you may naturally ask, well, can I be invisible and still be clothed? What about the things I hold in my hands? Are those things invisible too? Uh, what about if I'm in a room with people and I'm invisible, can they still hear me? Well, with practical considerations in mind, next maybe comes you know, philosophical thoughts. You know, what's the path that each one of these choices would lead down? Well, if you chose the power of flight, it would be really hard not to get attention. You'd have to try really, really hard because eventually you'd be outed as flight man or flight woman <laughs> and everyone would want to see you. But if you chose invisibility, you may think, well, this is a dark path if I'm not careful. This is a path of, of stealing and a path of sneaking. It's a path that leads to isolation, really. So either one of your choices, perhaps flight lends itself more easily to serving others rather than serving yourself. But nonetheless, either choice, whether you choose flight or invisibility, there's a heart behind how you use your new power. Well, today, we aren't talking about superpowers, but we are talking about a great gift we have received. Received, it's done. And, and the question becomes, what is our heart behind how we are going to use this gift? So the book of Galatians so far, Paul, is, Paul has said that this gift is our freedom. Freedom that Christ has completed. Freedom that he has won our status with God and no longer do we have to earn it ourselves. We haven't achieved it. We've received it. It's finished work. We're fully accepted before God in Christ Jesus. Friends, that's a precious gift. But we have to ask, 
how will we use that gift? How will we use it? Well, it's a good question to ask. But we have to remember, and as we'll see today, that included in this gift of freedom is the new heart to use that freedom well. Well, we read of that in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 25. I invite you to turn there if you're not there already. If you're using a Bible that looks like this in the pew rack in front of you, you'll find this on page 975, Galatians chapter 5. Um, and as we're going to read it, I want you to notice the stages of life after we've received the freedom. It's similar to the considerations we were making uh, after we chose what superpower we would have. Uh, so we see first, we, we see what we should do with our new completed freedom. And then we see if we know what we should do, uh, why it's not easy to do what we should do. And then the next stage becomes, well, what it looks like in the nitty gritty of life. What it looks like to do what we should do with our freedom. And then finally, it closes this section with how we do what we should do. The power behind it. How we are able so throughout all this progression, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this book, carries a contrast at each step, giving a negative example and a positive example. So Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 25. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Main point of this passage, and the main point we'll develop in this sermon. Christ's completed work for our freedom includes the power to live out that freedom. Christ has not set us free from sin so that we would still live in sin. We're going to see this 
this main point develop as we walk through this passage. We'll see how this passage really builds on itself. And again, it's going to carry a contrast throughout it. So we begin with the first stage of this progression. What should we do with our new freedom? What should we do if we've received Christ's finished work, if indeed it is finished? Well, that comes right away in verses 13 to 15, the answer to what we should do. Verse 13 says, Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So Christ's work is finished. And we read verse 13. If we keep in mind what Paul has been saying before in this book of Galatians, it's easy to see how Paul has gotten to this point. So remember that the argument to this point has been that our freedom our status with God, our justification, that is being declared righteous in God's sight, all that is done. Because all that rests on Christ's work, his sinless life in place of our sinful life, his death for our sin, and his resurrection confirming that substitution is legitimate. So the argument to this point is that it's finished, it's done. And Paul's concern for the Galatians, that's really come to a head in chapter 5, has been, well, now they're living like their freedom and their justification isn't done, like Christ hasn't finished it, like the rest of it remains up to them. That it's up to them to finish what Christ started. Paul says, no. In verse 1, he says, Christ has set us free. So his concern is that those who have been set free are living like they're still in bondage. But Paul has a new concern now. And it's as if uh, he's going through the superhero considerations and he's anticipating possible loopholes or objections. Well, if Christ has set us free, then what does it matter what we do now? Why not live however we want if Jesus has paid it all? Well, friends, it's because how we use our freedom shows if we really have received it. Just like we shouldn't live as freed ones, like we're still in bondage, like it's still up to us. Which is really ironic if you think about it, because they would uphold God's holiness and and how good we have to be. But Jesus has paid it all already. And so really the ironic thing about saying we have to earn our freedom is that that means you're saying that the holy God is satisfied with our mixed motives, imperfect, inconsistent obedience that's tampered with sin at every point. Yeah, God's satisfied with that. No, God's holiness has been satisfied by Christ's perfect obedience not ours. So we no longer live in bondage. But no longer as those who have been set free do we live 
as if we have license to abuse that freedom. You see, living that way, living as if we have license to do whatever we want, that undervalues God's love. It undervalues the steep price that Christ paid. The Son of God's life given for your sin and you would take that to live however you want. It shows a misunderstanding and it shows that we are using our freedom poorly. You see, license to sin is how we aren't supposed to use our freedom, Paul says in verse 13. He says this is using it as an opportunity for your flesh. And our, the flesh here doesn't refer to physical skin and bones. The flesh here refers to our hearts, still affected by sin, still opposed to God. So not only is using our freedom in this way to live in the sin that Christ died for, not only is that a backwards way of thinking, but using our freedom as an opportunity to serve our sinful, selfish desires is a dangerous way of living. You see in verse 13 that if everyone lived in this way in a community, the community would crumble. This is how we do not use the freedom Christ has won for us. Well, how should we use it then? How should we live in light of Christ's finished work? Well, instead of an opportunity to serve ourselves, we should see it as an opportunity to serve God and to serve others. That's what Paul says, verse 13. You see that word serve in verse 13? It's interesting because that word there has the same root as the word used for slave. So Christ has set us free and now we live out that freedom as if we were in some form of bondage to each other. That is just almost shocking. We live out that freedom as if it's an opportunity to serve one another in that deep of a way. And notice here that this bondage, this bondage is not out of duty. It's not out of fear. How do we serve one another once we've been freed? It's a bondage out of love. It's a bondage out of love. So the thought process is, Christ has finished it. I can make no more contributions. I no longer have to fear. I no longer have to think that I need to measure up because I know I can't. But Christ has. It's finished. So now, I'm free to just love God and love others because I want to. Not because I have to, to earn something. Christ has already earned it for me. So friends, you see how this makes love all the more pure. All the more pure. Because we love no longer for our own sake. We love simply for the sake of God and for others. It becomes selfless. Friends, that's the intention of the law that we read earlier in Leviticus 19. The intention is pure, selfless love. 
So friends, if our freedom, if our salvation is on us to earn it, then all of our service, all of our good deeds, all of our love will be partially motivated by self-interest. But if all we need is already met, we don't have to have self-interest anymore. We just simply love, we serve, because we're thankful. Because we want to, because we love God, we really love others. That's different from what these false teachers who came into Galatia were offering. Relying on the law alone would keep us serving out of self-interest. But the gospel removes that because it satisfies what we already need. We get to serve selflessly. Charles Spurgeon, a preacher in London in the 19th century, he understood how crucial this shift in motivation of how we live in light of Christ's finished work was. He illustrates this in a story he tells about a carrot. He writes this. Once upon a time in an old kingdom, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot in his garden. Now this man loved his sovereign. So he came and presented the carrot to the king, saying, This is the best carrot my garden will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. Now the king discerned his heart of love and devotion and saw that he wanted nothing in return. This moved the king, and he then gave the gardener far more land than he currently had for his garden. So the man went home rejoicing. Now a nobleman at court overheard this conversation. He thought to himself, if that is the response the Lord makes to such a small gift, what will he give in response to a great one? So the next day the nobleman brought the king a fine horse, saying, this is the best horse my stables will ever grow. Receive it as a token of my love. But the king discerned the nobleman's heart and in response, he just received the horse and dismissed the giver. When the king saw the look of confusion on his face, he said, the gardener's gift was a gift. Indeed, out of love. But you are just trying to make a profit. He gave me the carrot. You gave yourself the horse. New motivation. Friends, Christ setting us free means we no longer live for God and for others because we have to in order to earn something. No, we live for God and others because we want to, because we love God and we love those he's made. It's not about what we get out of it. We've already received it. Simply it's because we love and we are thankful. So the Christian life becomes less, what do I have to do? And what's the least amount I have to do? It becomes more, how else can I live for this great God? What else is on the table? That's how we should use our freedom. So we can just end it here, right? This is easy. We know what to do. Just walk out the door, we're done. Uh, no. <laughs> Unfortunately, not. Because the thing is, 
We may know what we should do, but it's not easy to do what we should do. Boy, just analogies abound for this, doesn't it? Uh, like if I go to Wendy's, and like that's mis- probably mistake number one, going to Wendy's. But if I'm going to Wendy's, I know I probably should get a salad from Wendy's. But, man, have you ever had a triple Baconator? <laughs> it is just so much better than a salad. But really, the, the analogy kind of breaks down because here, like, we should want to use our freedom well because like, that gives us joy. And so in that scenario, like, the salad should give me joy uh, more than the Baconator. <laughs> but we see why it's not easy to do what we should do in the next stage of the progression in verses 16 to 18. These verses speak of the conflict that really bemoans every Christian. The conflict between the flesh, our sinful desires that remain opposed to the Lord, and the spirit God has given each one of us who are in Christ. Do you remember that it's the Holy Spirit who gives us faith in Christ, and the Holy Spirit remains in us to give us desires for Christ. But even though this has happened, our experience of life after receiving Christ's finished work, and even this text here, it would tell us that we still feel the desires of our flesh. We still feel impulses to sin. So the word here, desire, really, it's not just desire for bad things. In fact, the word like literally translated, is over-desire. So it's not just desire for bad things. It's also desiring good things too much. Thinking that we must have this in order to be complete. And friends, then we functionally worship that thing, and that thing controls us. These are our impulses Like that hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But the Bible says that this impulse no longer rules in the Christian's heart. But it is still strong enough that we must resist it. So how should we think of this? How should we think that we still feel a desire to sin, that we still have the impulses of the flesh? Well, friends, the first step of how we should think of it, is actually thinking of it, is actually acknowledging that we still have these impulses to sin. First John says, if anyone denies that he has sin, he's a liar, and the truth is not in him. We need to acknowledge that we still feel this tug would take us away from the Lord. And friends, that means labeling it more than just a problem. It means calling it for what it is. It's it's calling it more than, oh, I have an anger problem. Oh, I I have a porn problem. It means I have a sin problem, and I want to love other things more than Jesus. 
that remains in our hearts, and we must acknowledge it. And acknowledging our impulse to sin, it keeps us vigilant rather than being careless. Acknowledging that we still have this keeps us humble and dependent instead of being self-sufficient. Friends, we need to be aware of our desires to sin every day. Every day we must acknowledge it. Failing to acknowledge that we still have these impulses is like failing to acknowledge we have body odor. I mean, try as you might. You will have body odor. And so every day, then, it is necessary that you should put on deodorant. (laughs) Because we have body odor. It's still something we deal with. But seriously, um, this conflict is real. You know? But it's just one side of the conflict. It's just one side. And we should be aware of our desires to sin still. We should acknowledge it. But we also should not feel powerless or hopeless against these impulses to sin. Because God has given us his spirit. And he who is within us is stronger than he who is in the world. God has given us his spirit. And the spirit gives us new hearts with new desires. And what is it that the spirit desires? Well, we read of it in John 16. The Holy Spirit desires to glorify Christ. That's what he desires. And that's what he will work in us. To glorify Christ. And he will do it as he shows that Jesus is more beautiful than any of the other things that we may desire more than him. And the result will be that not only do we believe in Jesus, but that our lives look more like Jesus. That's the Spirit's work. So we see in verse 18, the Spirit gives direction in that work. We see in verse 16 that the Spirit is the power behind that work of growing more like Christ and glorifying Christ. The direction and the power of it come from Him. But notice also that we still walk. And we're not passive in this process. We still walk. And walk here is in the present tense. It means we continue in the Spirit. It's ongoing. We continue in the one who is able to keep us from the sin that would take us from the Lord. We continue in the one who brings us closer to Christ. So this Spirit-led and Spirit-empowered life of walking after Jesus is the life that the law can't lead us to. You see, these agitators, these teachers in Galatia would say that they, they can avoid sin, that all they need to avoid sin is just the detailed prescriptions of the law. What you need are new rules. The gospel says no. What you need 
our new hearts. And that's what God has provided for us by giving us his spirit. So friends, verses 16 to 18 affirm that we still feel the need for new hearts. They affirm that the struggle to follow Christ in light of our impulses to sin, that struggle is real. But they also show that that struggle is not without hope. And friends, it will one day end. So using our freedom well out of selfless love is not easy. But God gives his spirit. And what does it look like to use our freedom well and to be led by the spirit? What is the nitty gritty of it? What are actual specific examples? Well, it's great that you asked. Because that's the next stage of the process. Paul gets into specifics of what it looks like to do what we should do in verses 19 to 23. And again, he carries that contrast, setting up a negative example and a positive example. So here we have in these verses lists. And it's kind of overwhelming amount of information. So we should keep some things in mind as we look in these lists. Well, first, it, the fact that they are specific things. It should remind us, friends, that pursuing Christ and fighting our desires to sin, that requires us from going to acknowledging the general need of that to going to acknowledging the specifics where we struggle with it. More than general, you need to get to the specifics. So these lists were relevant particularly to the people in Galatia at the time. And we should also keep in mind then that neither of these lists, the works of the flesh or the fruit of the spirit, neither are exhaustive. You can even see that with phrases. He says the works of the flesh are evidence. And then at the end of it, he says um, things like these. So neither are exhaustive. So that reminds us that, yes, specifics matter. But they start with broader principles. So we can first look at, the, look at the negative example, the works of the flesh. Following our impulses to sin manifests itself in specific ways. And Paul lists 15. And again, verses 19 to 21, 15 ways, that's an overwhelming amount of information. So it's helpful to group these things into categories. And most commentators on the Bible group them into four categories. The first is a category of sensuality. Here we have three different things. So we have sexual immorality, which would be sexual sins of any kind. Impurity, which again, like sexual misbehavior in general. And sensuality. Uh, it's just kind of denoting wild living without any kind of restraint. But the next category of the works of the flesh would be sins involving pagan religions. So here we have two. Idolatry, which is the worship of anything besides the one true God. This is an inadequate substitute for God. And also, sorcery. If idolatry is an inadequate substitute, sorcery is counterfeit works of God. 
And the next category, it works of the flesh, are sins involving relationships. Sins involving relationships. And there are eight of these, from hatred through envy. And really here, this is Paul's main concern for these people. That there is infighting in this community. And finally, the last category of the works of the flesh are sins related to substance abuse. You receive drunkenness and orgies. There's not so much as uh, sexuality as excessiveness. The point is here that the flesh leads to addiction to pleasure-creating substances. It's a lot to take in. You notice something in light of these categories. I think if we're honest, none of us go through these categories and these specific things without being stained. This list affects both the people who would look squeaky clean on the outside and the people who would look dirty in the eyes of the world. It affects both. Because this list says that things like drunkenness and unbridled living are sinful just as things like envy and selfishness are also sinful in a work of the flesh. So again, Paul reminds us that those who have been set free by Christ and transformed, they don't live in these specific ways. In verse 21, that, the tense of the verb again is important. You may see a footnote on that word live. Again, it's present tense. This means ongoing. Those who've been made new by Jesus don't live in these things in an ongoing, unrepentant way. And think about it. How, how could you? Now, this, this, this isn't claiming that Christians don't sin. This is, this is saying, how could you not even care about your sin that you say Christ died for? That's what this is saying. Yes, Christians still sin. But Christians have a new stance toward their sin. They've definitively taken sides against their sin. They are no longer okay with it. So, these are the works of the flesh. Getting into the specifics, the nitty-gritty. But what about the other side? How does the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, manifest itself? Well, Paul gives nine traits. He calls them the fruit of the Spirit. And again, nine's a lot to take in. So it could be helpful to group them into categories. Taking these uh, from what I found helpful from one commentator, uh, John Stott. So the first category is our approach to God. Here we see love, joy, and peace. So a Christian's first love is his love for God. His chief joy is his joy in God. His deepest peace is his peace in God. And the second category for the fruit of the Spirit is our approach to others. Patience, kindness, goodness. Patience being how we respond to trouble well. Not denying that there is trouble, but trusting God through it. Kindness being our general disposition. And we're genuinely kind, not manipulative, not self-righteous. 
and goodness being our honesty and integrity. The last category for the fruit of the Spirit, we are approached to ourselves. Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And faithfulness, speaking of reliability out of loyalty and courage and conviction. Gentleness, speaking of humility. Humility that our Lord exhibited. Self-control, speaking of us not being mastered by sin. Specific ways. A life of the Spirit. So what should we think of this? What should we take away going from such a large amount of information? Well, from the fruit of the Spirit, first we should notice that they're fruit. That word fruit indicates that this grows over time. This grows over time. And I don't know about you, I I still feel like I need growth. (laughs) But Christians then are, are like trees, like oak trees. They start off as a little acorn. And they grow almost undiscernibly each year. But they grow nonetheless. So it's fruit. I think walking away from this list, we should also see what the fruit is not. This fruit is not giftedness or ability. It's not giftedness or ability. It's character traits. So I think we get that backwards all the time. I think we value giftedness and ability more than we value character. Those aren't the Lord's values. And you see, these, this, these fruits, these characteristics, they're not just for, for some elite group of Christians. They're for every Christian. Paul makes no qualifications. So this is the Spirit's primary ministry, producing this type of Christ-like character in Jesus' people. So walking away from this list, we see the specifics. And it's important to look at the specifics. But friends, we can't skip what should lead to the specifics. We can't just take this list and say, all right, I'm just going to try really, really hard to do my best and work these out on my own. Willpower. I'm going to get it done. No, friends, that's moralism. This is fruit. The source of these is not us. (laughs) It's God's spirit. And friends, just focusing on the specifics and trying your best to work these out in your life, that's not what saves us. This is evidence that we've already been saved. This is evidence that we've already received life and been made new. That's what fruit is. Fruit, seeing fruit on a tree tells you that tree is alive. Seeing fruit in a Christian tells you that Christian has been made alive by God's Spirit. They're evidence, friends. So notice that again, this fruit is something that the law can't produce. New rules can't produce this. They can't enforce this. It can't give us new hearts. Well, God can. So friends, we can't live this out on our own, but God gives grace 
not just in freeing us from the guilt of our sin, even though that, would, that is marvelous on its own. God gives us grace in freeing us from the power of sin. That's marvelous as well. So here we are. Last stage, landing the plane. Know how we should live out our freedom, but we also realize that this is not easy. We acknowledge the conflict that we still feel this impulse to sin. But we know we are not hopeless within this conflict, that God's given us his spirit. And we know specifically how the spirit should work in our lives. But again, in our last stage, we remind ourselves, what is required for victory in this conflict? For victory in following Christ and overcoming our impulses to sin against God. Well, two things. Two things require. Verses 24 and 25. First, crucify the flesh and walk by the Spirit. Crucify the flesh, walk by the Spirit. Crucify the flesh immediately shows us that we must not, we cannot take our sinful impulses lightly. Friends, I don't think we risk running that, running that error. I think the error that we risk running is that we don't take our sin seriously enough. That's the error. Remember that crucifixion that shows us how seriously we should take our impulses to sin. Crucifixion is a gruesome death. It was the most gruesome death at its time. It was like scientifically designed to prolong a person's suffering as long as it could. And that's how we should treat our impulses to sin. That's how seriously. And notice here, this should be a decisive action. We have crucified the flesh. Now, it's not totally destroyed, but it is hanging on the cross. Its power is broken. Its fate is sealed. There is a new and settled stance that we have against our desire to sin. And that new and settled stance is a daily work. It's what Jesus says in Luke 9.23. Deny yourself Take up your cross daily and follow me. So friends, do you have a holy resolve to crucify your flesh, your impulses to sin? Do you have a holy resolve to do that both like generally and even specifically? But we ask even in light of that phrase, crucify the flesh, who are the ones that this is true for? For whom is this true? This is true for those who belong not to themselves, but you look at the text, verse 24. This is true for those who belong to Jesus. For those who belong to Jesus. Friends, is that you? Is that you? Do you belong to Jesus? If you do, Romans 6.6 6 is true for you. It says, we know that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. United with him by faith. Crucified with him. The one who was crucified in our place. Does that happen for you? And one of the ways you know that it has is that God is beginning to produce in you new desires. No longer to follow sin, but new desires for Christ. Crucify the flesh. What's required for victory in this conflict between our impulses to sin and the spirit God has given us. Well, the second thing that requires that we walk by the Spirit. Remind ourselves that strength and direction in this process comes not from us. It comes from God. My friends, we still walk. But our walking, our effort, is only made possible by what God has already done for us. So friends, this means walking by the Spirit in light of our desires in our hearts that this is more than just changing our behavior. It's more than that. It means yielding to God's work to change our hearts, to desire Christ above all, and to see all the places in our hearts where he does not have the rightful place he deserves. The Bible calls this putting off the old man, and putting on the new man. A good chapter to reflect on this is Colossians chapter 3. You have this afternoon? This is a good chapter to read and reflect on this afternoon. Colossians chapter 3. You talk, meet up and talk with that about somebody. Friends, walking in the Spirit means actively setting our minds on things above and remembering our source of victory. So friends, it's possible to use our freedom well to do what we should do only because Christ has already broken the power of sin and God's given us his spirit to give us new hearts and new desires. This is the life after we've received freedom. You know what even the freeing thing is about that? Is that we can go about this process that's often frustrating we can go about that process without having to worry. Without worrying that we haven't measured up in God's sight. Without worrying that we don't have approval from God. Without having to worry that we aren't beautiful in God's sight. We can go about that process without worry because we're already accepted by God and His Son. And God has already approved of us because we are united to His Son. And we are already beautiful in God's sight because we're united to his son who is beautiful in his sight. So friends, we can go about our lives even after we've received all that Christ has done for us without having to worry. But we work nonetheless because we love God and we're thankful. So God's given us a new and secure status. It's done. But that gift leads to a new, different living. Let's ask for God's help. Let's pray. Lord, help us 
Help us in our lives after we've come to know you. Lord, we never, we never cease to need your grace. Lord, we, we bemoan that we still have desires for, for what is against you, that we still desire things more than you. Who is greater than you? What is greater than you? What is more important? What is more glorious? Who is more majestic? Who, is, who else is eternal? Who else is as holy as you? God, no one and nothing. Teach us this, God. And by your spirit, we crucify our flesh and walk in the newness of life that Christ has won for us. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen.